Chapter 3 of Regiment of Women. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Elsie Selwyn. Regiment of Women by Clements Dane. Chapter 3. Alwyn Durand was quite aware that she was an errant coward. The cronies of her now remote school days would have exclaimed at the label, have cited this or that memorable audacity in confutation, but Alwyn knew herself better. When her impulsiveness had jockeyed her into an uncomfortable situation, pure pride could always be trusted to sustain her, strengthen her shoulders, and sharpen her wits, but she triumphed with shaking knees. Alwyn, touchy with the touchiness of eighteen, was bound to fling down her glove before Henrietta Vigors, and be ostentatiously ready to face cornet, flute, harp, sackbut, psaltery, and all kinds of music. But Alwyn, half an hour later, on her way to Miss Hartill and her overdue apology, was bound also to be feeling more like a naughty schoolgirl than a mistress of six weeks' standing has any business to feel, to be uneasily wondering what she should say, how she should say it, and why on earth she had been fool enough to get herself into the mess. If it had been any one but Miss Hartill, with whom she had not exchanged five words, but whom she had heard discussed, nevertheless, from every conceivable and inconceivable point of view, with that accompanying profusion of anecdote of which only schoolgirl memory, so traditional as well as personal, is capable. Miss Marsham, she had been given to understand, might be headmistress, but Miss Hartill was Miss Hartill. Alwyn, accustomed as she was to the cults of a boarding school, had ended by growing exceedingly curious. Yet when Miss Hartill had returned a week or two late to her post, Alwyn could not, as she phrased it, for the life of her see what all the fuss was about. Miss Hartill was ordinary enough. Alwyn had looked up one morning from an obscure corner of the common room at the sound of a clicking latch, had had an impression of a tall woman, harshly outlined by the white-paneled door, against which she leaned lazily as she quizzed the room full of women. Alwyn told herself that she was not at all impressed. This Miss Hartill of a hundred legends? This, the Olympian to whom three-fourths of the school said its prayers? Who had split the staff into an enthusiastic majority and a minority that concealed its dislike? Queer. Alwyn, shrugging her shoulders over the intricacies of a school's enthusiasms, had leaned back in her chair to watch, between amusement and contempt, the commotion that had broken out. There was a babble of welcome, a crossfire of question and answer, and then, over the heads of the little group that had gathered about the door, a pair of keen, roving eyes had settled on her, coolly appraising. Alwyn had been annoyed with herself for flushing under the stare. She had a swift impression of being summed up. All raw and youthful and ambitious as she was, her attitude of unwilling curiosity detected, expected even. There had been a flicker of a smile, amused, faintly insolent. But it had all been merest impression. Miss Hartill, who had been, indeed, surrounded, inaccessible from the instant of her entrance until the prayer bell rang, did not look her way a second time, but the impression had remained, and Alwyn, obscure in her newness and her corner, found herself reconsidering this Miss Hartill, more roused than she would confess. If she were not the Hypatia Helen of the classrooms, she was nonetheless a personality. Whether Alwyn would like her was another matter. Alwyn, in the next few days, had not come into direct contact with Miss Hartill. She had noticed, however, a certain stirring of the school atmosphere, a something of briskness and tension that affected her pleasantly. 
The children, she supposed, were getting into their stride, but she began to see that the classes chiefly affected were the classes with which Miss Hartill had most to do, that the mistresses, too, were working with unusual energy, and that Miss Vigors was less in evidence than heretofore, that, in short, Miss Hartill's return was making a difference. Insensibly, she slipped into the fashion of being slightly in awe of her, was daily and undeniably relieved that her work had as yet escaped the swift eyes and lazy criticism. But she was also aware that she would be distinctly gratified if Miss Hartill should at any time express satisfaction with her in her efforts. Miss Hartill was certainly interesting. She had wondered if she should ever get to know her, had hoped so. And now Napoleon Bonaparte and a stopped clock had between them managed the business for her effectively. She was going to know Miss Hartill, a justifiably, and according to Miss Vigors, excessively indignant Miss Hartill. She looked forward without enthusiasm to that acquaintance. She did not know what she should say to Miss Hartill, but Miss Hartill would do the talking, she imagined. She was extremely sorry for herself as she knocked at Miss Hartill's door. The maid left her stranded in the hall, and she waited, uncomfortably conscious of the voices in the next room. Brand, but I don't know any... Durand! Oh, Durand! What an extraordinary time to... All right, Baggett. No, lunch as usual. The maid slipped across the hall again to her kitchen as Miss Hartill came forward, polite, unsmiling. She did not offer her hand, but stood waiting for Alwyn to deliver herself of her errand. But Alwyn was embarrassed. The exordium she had so carefully prepared during her walk was eluding her. It had been easy to arrange the conversation beforehand, but Miss Hartill and the flesh was disconcerting. She jumbled her opening sentences, flushed, floundered, and was silent. Ensued a pause. Claire surveyed her visitor quizzically, enjoying her discomfort. Alwyn was at her prettiest at a disadvantage. She had an air of shedding eight of her eighteen years, of recognizing in her opponent a long-last nurse. Claire repressed a chuckle. "'Try again, Miss Durand,' she said solemnly. "'I came,' said Alwyn blankly. "'You see, I came—' She paused again. "'Yes, I think I see that,' said Claire as one enlightened. Alwyn eyed her dubiously. There might or might not have been a twinkle in her colleague's eye. She took heart of grace and began again. "'Miss Hartill, I'm awfully sorry. It was me. I, I mean, I kept the girls. I didn't hear the gong. Really and truly, I didn't. Honestly, it was an accident. I thought I ought to come and apologize. Truly, I'm most awfully sorry, quite apart from avoiding getting into a row, because I've gotten into that already.' Claire's lips twitched. Alwyn was built on generous lines. She had a good carriage, could enter a room effectively. Claire had not been unaware of her secure manner. Her present collapse was the more amusing." Claire was beginning to guess that what Miss Durand did, she did wholeheartedly. "'I expect you're simply wild with me. Miss Vigors said you would be,' said Alwyn hopelessly. "'Miss Vigors ought to know,' said Claire. There was another pause. "'I'm frightfully sorry?' said Alwyn suggestively. "'Are you, Miss Durand?' I mean, apart from upsetting you, I'm so savage with myself. One doesn't exactly enjoy making a fool of oneself, does one, Miss Hartill? You know how it feels. And it's my first post, and I did mean to do it well. And I've only been here six weeks, and I'm in a row with three people already. How? Three? said Claire with interest. Well, there's you. I think we're settling that, said Claire with her sudden smile. Are we? 
Alwyn looked up so warily that Claire laughed outright. <laughs> but the other two, Miss Durand, the other two, this grows interesting. Why, well, you see, Alwyn expanded, I had an awful row with Miss Figures, and she's sure to tell Miss Marsham. I suppose I was rude, but she did make me so mad. I don't see that it was her business to come and slang me before my class. My class, corrected Claire. I wouldn't have minded you, said Alwyn, lifting ingenuous eyes. I'm flattered, murmured Claire. Well, you would have understood, said Alwyn with conviction. But Miss Figures, I ask you, Miss Harto, what would be the use of talking about Napoleon to Miss Figures? I give it up, said Claire promptly. But there you are, Alwyn waved her hand triumphantly. But, excuse me, Claire was elaborately respectful. Has Napoleon any traceable connection with the kidnapping of my class? Oh, I thought I explained. Alwyn plunged into her story. You see, I was giving them elocution. They were learning the incident in the French camp, you know. Claire nodded. Well, I thought they were rather more wooden than usual, and I found that they knew practically nothing about Napoleon. Marengo, Talleyrand, never heard of him. Waterloo, and that he behaved badly to his wife. That's all they knew. The English, in a nutshell, murmured Claire. So, of course, I told him all about him and his life and tidbits like the Sevres tea things and Madame Saint-Gene. They loved it, and I was showing them pictures, and I suppose we got absorbed. You can't help it with Napoleon somehow. Oh, Miss Hartill, doesn't it seem crazy, though, to keep those children at Latin exercises and the exports of lower tooting and bills of Atander and the reign of Queen Anne before they know about things like Napoleon and Homer and the Panama Canal? Wouldn't you rather know about the life of Buddha than the War of Jenkins' Ear? Not that I ever got to the Georges myself. Oh, it makes me so wild. It's like stuffing them with peanuts when one has got a basket of peaches on one arm. It isn't education, it's goose cramming. I can't explain properly what I mean. I expect you think I'm a fool. An enthusiast. It's much the same, said Claire absently. You'll get over it. Then with a twinkle. Reform's an excellent thing, of course. But why annex my class to experiment with? Alwyn defervesced. There was an unhappy pause. You know I'm most awfully sorry, said Alwyn at last, as one made a brilliant and original contribution to the discussion. A piercing shriek from the kitchen interrupted them. Alwyn jumped, but Claire was undisturbed. It's only Baggett. She's always having accidents. But she's an excellent cook, after all. What's a shilling's worth of crockery a week compared with a good cook? But to return to Napoleon in the lower third... You don't think she hurt herself? Alwyn ventured to interrupt. She did squeal. Claire looked suddenly concerned. I hope not. I haven't had lunch yet. She went to the kitchen door, reappearing with a slightly harried air. Miss Durand, I wish you'd come here a moment. She has cut her hand. Oh, lavishly. Most careless. What is one to do? I suppose one must bandage it? Her tone of helpless disgust was so genuine that Alwyn was inclined to laugh. So there were circumstances that could be too much even for Miss Hartill. How reassuring! And how it warmed the cockles of one's heart to her. Her lip twitched mischievously as she looked from the disconcerted mistress to the sniffing maid, but she lost no time in stripping off her gloves and setting to work, issuing orders the while that Claire obeyed with a meekness that surprised herself. "'Linen, please, Miss Hartill, or old rags. It's rather a bad cut.' Then to the maid, "'How on earth did you do it? A tin opener?' "'No, no, Miss Hartill, a duster's no good. An old handkerchief or something?' 
She was achieving complicated effects with a fork and a knotted scarf as she spoke, and Claire, obediently tearing linen into strips, considered her critically. The girl was capable then, as well as amusing. That tourniquet might not be professional, but it was at least effective. The bleeding was stopping. Very good of her to toil over Baggett's unappetizing hand. Claire marveled at her unconcern, for she was dainty enough in her own person to please even Claire's fastidious eye. Claire supposed that it was a good thing that some people had the nursing instinct. She thanked her stars that she herself had not. Alwyn, unconscious of scrutiny, put in her final safety pin, settled the sling, and stepped back at last, studying her handiwork with some pride. "'It'll want a stitch, though. She'd better go to the doctor, I think,' she said decisively. "'Shall I come with you?' This to the maid, complacently, the center of attention, but the maid preferred to fetch her mother. "'Her mother lived quite close, miss, if Miss Artill could get on. "'She can't do any cooking with that hand,' said Alwyn to Claire, more in decision than appeal. And Claire, acquiescing, she fetched her hat and coat, manipulated hatpins, and bundled the girl forth. She returned to the kitchen to find Miss Hartill's skirts clutched high, eyeing the crowded table with distaste, and prodding with a toasting fork at the half-prepared meal. "'Isn't it disgusting how these people bleed? I can't stand a mess!' Really, I'm very much obliged to you, Miss Durand, for seeing to bag it. I'm no good at that sort of thing. I hate touching people. You don't think it was a bad cut, though? It must have hurt. She won't be able to use her hand for a day or two. Claire rubbed her nose peevishly. She had a comical air of resenting the necessity for concerning herself with her own domestic arrangements. Well, what am I to do? And I loathe charwoman. She might at least have got lunch first. The meal's cooked, anyhow, said Alwyn, hopefully, drawing forth a congealing dishful. Claire shivered. Take it away. It's all over Baggett. I don't think it is, Alwyn examined it cautiously. Claire gave her a short laugh. Anyhow, it doesn't appeal anymore. Never mind, Duran. I shall manage. I mustn't keep you. Alwyn disregarded the hint. She seemed preoccupied. There aren't any eggs, I suppose. She ventured diffidently. Claire flung out vague hands. Heaven knows it's Baggett's business. Why? Because, Alwyn had crossed the room and was struggling with a stiff cupboard door. Elspeth says I'm a fool at cooking. Elspeth's my aunt, you know. But I can make omelets. The door gave suddenly and Alwyn fell forward into the dark pantry. There was a clatter of scattered bread pans. She soon emerged, however, flowery but serene. Yes, there are some. It won't take ten minutes, Miss Hartill. That is, if she thought delicately for a tactful phrase, if you would perhaps like to go away and read, if anyone stands about and watches, you know what I mean. Are you proposing to cook my lunch? Claire demanded. Of course, if you don't like omelets, said Alwyn demurely. Claire laughed outright. <laughs> I do, I do. All right, Mr. Rand. I'm too hungry to refuse. But I see through it, you know. It's to cry quits. Alwyn broke in indignantly. It isn't. It's the amende honorable, at least if it doesn't scorch. All right, I accept it. Claire pacified her. Then as she left the kitchen, Miss Durand? Yes, Miss Hartill? Are you going to make one for Miss Vigors? Alwyn's face fell. I'd forgotten Miss Vigors. Claire twinkled. Perhaps. If it doesn't scorch, I'll see what I can do. She promised her. The lunch was a success. Alwyn, dishing up, had her hat ordered off her head, and was soon sharing the omelet and marveling at herself for being where she was, and Claire, on her part, found herself enjoying her visitor as much as her meal. 
Claire Hartill led a sufficiently solitary life. She was a woman of feverish friendships and sudden ruptures. Always the cleverest and most restless of her circle, she usually found her affinities as unable to satisfy her demands, on their intellect as on their emotions. Disillusionment would be swift and final. Claire never forgave a bore. Gradually, it came to pass that intercourse she carefully fostered with her elder pupils became her absorbing and satisfying interest. She plumbed herself on her independence of social amenities, did not guess, would not have admitted, that her pleasure in a chance table companion had its flavor of pathos. It was enough to acknowledge to herself that Alwyn Durand, with her enthusiasms, her incoherencies, and her capacities had certainly caught her difficult fancy. She liked the girl's manner, its compound of shyness and audacity, deference and independence pleased her sophisticated taste. She found her racy and original, and in the exertion of drawing her out, was herself at her best. A brilliant talker, she chose to listen, and soon heard all there was to hear of Alwyn's short history. Of her mother's sister Elspeth Loveday, Claire pricked up her ears at the name, who had reared her from babyhood, of her school days, her crude young likes and dislikes, her hero worships and passionate vague ambitions. Claire knew it all by heart, had heard the tale from more pairs of lips than she could remember, for more years than she cared to count. But Alwyn, nevertheless, told it in a way of her own that appealed to Claire and interested her anew. She told herself that the girl was worth cultivating, and what with apt comments, after silences, and the half-finished phrases and abrupt noddings of perfect comprehension, contrived to make Alwyn think her the most sympathetic person she had ever had the fortune to meet. Indeed, they pleased each other so well that when Alwyn, towards tea-time, made an unwilling move, Claire was as unwilling, for her part, to let her go. "'It was certainly a most excellent omelette,' she said as she sped her from the door. "'I suppose you won't come and cook me another tonight?' Alwyn took her out of her word. "'I will. Of course I will. Would you like me to, really? I will. I'd love to.' Claire laughed. "'Oh, I was only in fun. Whatever would your aunt say?' "'She wouldn't mind,' began Alwyn eagerly. Claire temporized. "'But your work. Haven't you any work?' Alwyn overwhelmed her. "'That's all right. It isn't much. I'll sit up. I wish you'd let me know. I would love to. You must have someone to cook your supper for you, mustn't you?' "'Well, of course, if you'd really like to.' Claire hesitated between jest and earnest, but Alwyn was wholly in earnest. "'I'll come. Thank you very much indeed,' said Alwyn, eyes sparkling." End of chapter 3